So I'm just about to get in the studio to start recording this analysis of Emmanuel Macron when the news came down, which is not unrelated. The two police officers have been shot in the French overseas region of Réunion by a man suspected of planning an Islamist terror attack. We will get to why that's relevant in just a few minutes. But first, we're going to try and get our intellectual hands on the hologram fogginess, the marketing murk of Emmanuel Macron, who is the Rothschild rebel, the outside of the maverick, the anti-system candidate, um, who actually, in terms of his education and career, is sort of the distilled platonic perfection of all of the characteristics, good and bad, of the French elite, boiled down into one fairly well-coiffed and skeletor-loving young politician. Uh, For Macron to say he's anti-establishment is sort of like Janet yelling, getting a mohawk, putting on a motorcycle jacket and criticizing the Fed. So Macron attended the highly polished Lycée Henri IV school in Paris. Uh, He took a degree in public affairs at Sciences Po in the same city, of course, Paris, sometimes called Sciences Po-People, a fake school, which to me at least seems to be in the business of selling access to a highly polished and professional elitist network, but is not so much in the business of providing real intellectual education or actual expertise in anything. Uh, In this school, a student-run online poll suggested that 23% of its students had seriously considered quitting the school because they considered the courses to be too superficial and, and lacking deep analysis of topics. So that's kind of important. Now, what comes out of this school is very, very important because the media, much like the media in America behind Barack Obama, the media have really gotten behind Macron. They are pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. And one of the realities is that almost every French newspaper is run by people who graduated from Sciences Po. Most of the journalists in France are graduates and alumni from uh, Sciences Po. So that's kind of important. Because if you look at the media in France with regards to Macron, what do you see? This endless magazine covers these praising puff pieces, fawning interviews, and never, never a word of criticism. Whereas, of course, his rivals uh, in the French election, I guess down to one now, Marine Le Pen, well, they're denigrated on a regular basis, insulted and so on. And again, there's this parallel to Barack Obama and his relationship with the entirely bootlicking and fawning leftist press in America, which is to say, the press in America. So, for instance, uh, in, in January of this year, uh, Foreign Policy magazine and website introduced its readers to Macron, and the title was The English-speaking, German-loving French politician Europe has been waiting for. <laughs> and that, my friends, is what we call objective journalism. Ooh, I mean, watching these guys is like, if you ever seen these videos of these Chinese people racing around doing these giant wall-sized typewriters? <sighs> That's how they're programming you, my friends. They are programming you to accept all of this nonsense. So I got to tell you, I didn't read the whole article because I really don't want to give myself brain diabetes. But here's a few um, choice passages from, from the article. So the subtitle to this article is Emmanuel Macron is promising hope and change for the entire continent. Hope and change. For God's sakes, guys, can you not even (laughs) be subtle about your pillaging of the Obama campaign? Hope and change. Hope and change. And I'm promising you emotions, you see. At one point, there was a certain amount of rigor in French philosophy, you know, prior to the endless... class pimple-popping resentments of the Marxist camps, which came in in the 60s, but there used to be some rigor in in French thought. And, I mean, the U.S. press is pretty impressed that Macron at one point studied philosophy, although that's fairly common in France, which makes you either think philosophy is very bad for a country or France is very bad at philosophy. I'm going to go for the latter. But he's promising hope and change. Feelings. Huh. I wonder... I wonder which constituency he might be appealing to that prefers feelings over facts. I don't know. Too too much of a riddle for me, Batman. So So he's promising hope and change for the entire continent. And uh, they 
gave a review of one of his speeches. And uh, this is the quote. Macron's speech offered a powerful and convincing case that he is the last great French hope for a European future based on a common market and a common morality, a single currency and a singular commitment to the continent's core values. Huh. Wait a minute. First of all, not an argument. I just wanted to mention, sorry, if you're going to sleep with this, I'll try to restrain myself, but a little tricky. A common morality in Europe? Wait a minute, guys. I thought diversity was a strength. <laughs> I thought that you weren't allowed to teach values because it might offend immigrants. <sighs> Continent's core values. Wait a minute. Are you saying that there are core values in Western civilization that need to be defended? What about cultures coming into Europe whose values are entirely incompatible, if not contradictory to those European... Oh, why do I bother? <laughs> it's just so bad. Now, not only are they blowing an enormous amount of uh, gatoin smoke up, um, Macron's but but they're also dissing Marine Le Pen, right? So it's it's a cliche, and, and anyone who thinks the press the press is even remotely free just needs to look at every single time that uh, Marine Le Pen's party is referred to. It's the far right party, not rightist, not right, not centrist, not you know. She has um, she's a nationalist who's a socialist, actually <laughs> kind of true in a way. She's very much on the socialist side, though not a Nazi, of course, right? But um, you have to refer to him as a her party, as, as the far-right party. But, you see, if you're writing this magazine article, you refer to her party as the extreme far-right party. Because redundancy, right? Extreme and far-right is redundant. But you've got to put both those words in just in case anyone misses the message. And, of course, everyone has to do this. It's just because it's all controlled and all a bunch of nonsense. But And also, she's called Trumpian which, um, of course, is a massive insult in, uh, in Europe because they, they gave up their guns. So, you know, I read a bunch of this and I, I sort of threw up a little bit of my mouth, rinsed it out, and, and decided to stop. You know, it's important not to end up with brain cavities uh, where your reason should be because you overconsume the uh, solar radiating candy floss of mainstream media verbal garbage. Anyway, so Macron eventually took a course at the École Nationale d'Administration, which is kind of like a uh, walk around with books on your head, finishing school for the ruling class in France, the establishment. And it's very, very hard to win against the establishment, which is a whole bunch of, it's, it's the, it's the uh, educational system, it's the academics, it's the media, it's the politicians, uh, it's the bankers, it's the financial elite. It's a whole bunch of people who run society and basically the politicians are kind of like hood ornaments on front of that prior to Trump. And uh, this is um, where he ended up going to this um, finishing school for the ruling class. They've actually graduated like three presidents and six prime ministers. So let's just say they're plugging you into a pretty nasty but very powerful networking system. Now, after all of this preparation and grooming, <laughs> grooming, grooming. Well, we'll get back to Macron's teenage dating life in a moment. But after all this preparation, Macron went straight into the ministry for the economy and, and finance, <laughs> because that, that's what you do after you've got a pretty unsubstantial networking-based miseducation. After that, he left to work at the Rothschild's bank, because nothing says revolutionary like working for the Rothschild. And later he joined President Hollande's staff at the Elysee. He was appointed Minister of Economy, Industry, and Digital Data, because... I guess it's just kind of like reaching into a Scrabble bag of random words and assembling it into your business card. Uh, this was in August 2014. He was there for two years. He resigned in August 2016 to found his new party and run for the presidency. So back in 2008, he was joining Rothschild. The guy was 30. He, he'd been a civil servant his whole life. And his friends actually said, oh man, this could really mess you up for a future career in politics because banking in France is known as a whore's profession, which is horrible. I mean, what a what a horrible insult to whores uh, who you don't have to uh, lend money to. Uh, they, they won't create money out of thin air, lend it to you at interest and enslave your children. Uh, whores, um, it's a, still voluntary, uh, still, still have the option to not participate. So please guys, lay off uh, the whores uh, that don't don't insult that profession. <sighs> so this graduate, right, of this ENA, the, the school that breeds France's future leaders, 
he came recommended by all of the powerful alumni of this school, including François Enrault, a longtime Rothschild partner. But uh, the bankers he worked with, the young bankers, not, not so impressed. So one of his former colleagues said, he was the guy who would constantly say thank you. He didn't know what EBITDA, that's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. He didn't know what EBITDA was. He didn't try to hide it, and instead of looking it up in a corporate finance book, he asked around, which was disarming. Hey, guys, I'm new here. What's EBITDA? <laughs> oh, God. Ah, uh, what do you say? See, that's why you get hired to work for a complicated financial instrument organization because you don't know basic terms of uh, investment or tax or profit or loss or anything like that. Ah, so it was the recommendation from a powerful guy. He was taken into this Rothschild bank at a pretty high level. And then what happened was he kind of got bungeed into negotiating a Nestle purchase, which was worth $9 billion. And as a result of this commission, he became uh, a millionaire. Because, you know, that's kind of how it works, right? You, you come out of a government job and you're thrown into a bank and almost right away you're thrown onto a multi-billion dollar deal, which makes you a millionaire. Isn't that pretty much how everyone gets ahead these days? Amazing. So how did he rise up so quickly? Um, well, because he didn't know what EBITDA was. <laughs> I'm sorry, he didn't know what EBITDA was. And um, one of his mentors said he was impressive. He got along with everyone and, quote, didn't antagonize anyone. Mm. See, that's what you want when you are trying to get a leader into power, when you want a presidency during an absolutely critical and crucial time in French history, if not European history as a whole, when the entire history of European civilization hangs like a fishing wire on a knife edge to plunge either to the abyss of social conflict and diversity plus proximity equaling war, as it generally does, what you want in, in such a time of crisis and challenge and the need for courage and resolution, what you want is someone who's so ghost-like and transparent and non-existent that they just never antagonize anyone. Isn't that pretty much what England did when Chamberlain was kicked out? They looked around and they said, you know that Churchill guy? He doesn't antagonize anyone. Let's put him in charge. <sighs> so Mr. Macron ends up in the Rothschild Bank, he doesn't understand the language, he doesn't understand the jargon or anything like that. But what he brings is lots of contacts in government. And this is uh, according to Sophie Jacharie, head of BNP, a Paris-based corporate finance in Europe. Uh, she, she was asked by Mr. Enron to coach Mr. Macron in, this, uh, in his first year there. So, I mean... I've actually worked in a financial institution. It's pretty bizarre. It's pretty bizarre. He was chosen and groomed by banking interests and power interests. And he was so important that they had to form this consortium of companies. They all went, got around, pitched in and helped him out. But that's pretty, pretty wild. <sighs> so on one of the deals, Mr. Macron, according to... Uh, people, quote, had a fairly junior role at the time. He would be asked to redo the financial models on Excel, the basics. This is recalling an advisor. But a few days after this deal was announced, Mr. Macron was made a partner. A partner from, like, mucking about with Excel spreadsheets to whoosh, moving up to partnership. That usually takes decades of staggering amounts of work and competence, but boom, just go straight up there. And within a few months after that, his colleagues were blown away, stunned, that Macron won a role in Nestle's purchase of Pfizer's infant food operations. I mean, <laughs> I'm telling you, I've been there. You don't go from updating Excel models at a junior level to becoming a partner overnight. And then you don't, certainly don't get propelled into a multi-billion dollar deal, which nets you uh, over a million dollars uh, within a couple of months. I mean, this, 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 somebody or a group of people who are extraordinarily powerful are just pulling strings for this guy. I don't know. Maybe this all has something to do with his wife and the fact that, you know, he's young, he's attractive, he obviously 
to me at least, has no particular values of any kind. And what the power elites want is people who are controllable. And the reason why he might be so controllable may have something to do with his vanity and his pomposity and his empty-headed, vainglorious manipulation of everyone around him by appealing to their baser instincts. But there may be another reason why he's so controllable, which we'll get to later. So he'd been, like, insanely promoted. He'd been made rich. And then he was groomed for politics. And how did he go about this? So... Before he announced his candidacy to be president, uh, Macron's team, well, and this is sort of inspired by the Obama campaign in America in 2008, his team reviewed a survey of thousands of French citizens because they wanted to know what these French citizens wanted to hear from their politicians. And this is detailed stuff. It's like 25,000 very in-depth interviews with voters. And then they're used, this sort of, these interviews are used as the basis for his policy platforms, the language he uses, and so on. So basically, he went from, you know, Barack Obama to Barack O'Blander. He's a marketing candidate. He's like the vanity hologram. Oh, I'll reflect back to you what you want to hear. He's the thinning mirror that means you don't have to diet. diet. He's Chauncey Gardner. He's what Rand used to call a social metaphysician, not what is good and what is right, but what do people think is good? What do people think is right? This sociopathic manipulation and superficial charm, oh, that's all the hallmark of late democratic, economic, and cultural suicide. Now, as you can well imagine, the manifesto that came bubbling out of these in-depth interviews with mostly ignorant people asking them what syllables they would like to hear assembled in order to unlock the self-destructiveness of their idiotic voting, this manifesto, it's kind of goopy, it's kind of centrist, and it's been mocked for blandness and trying to please everyone, be all things to all people, but um, eh. in general, I mean, this is is very, very predictable, right? So in general, he offers entirely contradictory policies to entirely oppositional forces. So he's going to cut taxes and spending, but he's also going to provide more support for those on low incomes. He's going to expand unemployment insurance, and he's going to spend... 50 billion euros, that's about 42 billion pounds for public infrastructure. And he's going to shift to, so boringly predictable, renewable energy, because that's just worked out so well everywhere else it's been tried. Well, it's tough to bribe companies to go out of business if you don't have a green cover for them. And the fact that he's very successful by reflecting back in a purely marketing way the syllables that the voters want to hear by giving them the drip, drip drugs of empty adjectives According to a Harris Interactive survey, only 31% of French voters have any clear idea what the hell Macron is going to do once he gets in office. That's way below his main rivals. Because his main rivals are saying, this is what we want to do, and people understand what they want to do, and that's what you vote for. But he's just reflecting back um, marketing slogans that um, focus groups have deemed worthwhile. So nobody knows what he's going on. But uh, he's passionate, he's pretty, and... um, He's fairly close to a necrophile. Anyway, so he gave this victory speech recently, and I mean, it was, it's pretty vacuous, you know? I mean, so he's telegenic, he's he's pretty, but what substance does he have? What values is he bringing to the table? Why would you choose him because of what he believes in? Now, so the fact that he keeps spouting these bland inanities and... It's like trying to drink fine, fine French wine by putting your face into a garden sprinkler. It's not going to give you anything particularly appealing. And he, he gets pretty hyper-emotional, you know, like he, he shouts himself hoarse at these messianic rallies and he promises, he gets on his knees, he swears to his audience that he loves them. <laughs> well, I think that uh, pretty much speaks for itself. Now, he does want to cut corporate taxes and, and red tape, he wants to allow companies to renegotiate this, renegotiate this fairly famous 35-hour work week and make it easier to hire and fire people. So he wants to liberalize markets to some degree, at least the notoriously complex and hyper-regulated French labor markets. Is this because he has any particular dedication to the free market uh, as a whole? Well, no. 
I, I, no, because there's no particular evidence that he has any particular respect for the free market as a principle. But it does serve his corporatist masters to lower corporate taxes and make it easier to fire people. It's just serving the political and economic powers that be. I mean, the French labor code is completely ridiculous. Do you know the French labor code is actually longer than the Bible. And of course, that drives off investment and private sector growth and so on. And people don't want to hire French workers because it's virtually impossible to fire them. So anyway, so I just, there's lots we could talk about in his speeches. I just grabbed this example um, where Macron said, I hope that in a fortnight I will become your president. I want to become the president of all the people of France, the president of the patriots in the face of the threat from the nationalists. <laughs> what? What is this incomprehensible garbage? Assuming the translation is accurate. Patriotism is the enemy of nationalism? Hey, patriots, I'm going to save you from the danger of people who love their country. <laughs> I wish to be the synonym opposed to the synonym. <laughs> oh my god oh i am so happy i have no desire to get into politics i'd be very good and very very corrupted so this is the kind of uh, crap that uh, is is passing for speeches but again this is the barack obama feely fash model of um, advancing political causes now you heard me say he's not a huge fan of the free market. Why, why would I possibly say that? Well, because Macron was a member of the Socialist Party from 2006 to 2009. Now, a mere seven years later, during a visit to the Vendée, August 2016, he stated, Honesty compels me to say that I am not a socialist. Now, actually, honesty would compel you to say, if you even kind of knew what that meant, that honesty would compel you to say that you are no longer a socialist, that you've rejected socialist, that socialism, that you've repudiated your former socialism, and then you'd be asked in any rational universe, why? What happened? What changed? What did you learn? Why were you wrong before? Why should we trust you now? But of course, he's the hopey, changey goo that makes everyone feel like they're not running off a cliff. So nobody's going to ask him that. I mean, he's supposed to be this hopey, changey guy. But he's a candidate favored by the EU, by NATO, the financial markets, the Clinton-Obama machine, because Obama's a big fan of the guy, the French establishment, assorted business oligarchs, and the top six French media groups. Here's, here's a hint, my French friends. Just a, a little hint. Um, if everybody who's currently destroying the world loves this guy, he's not going to save you. you understand? If you want to judge a man, look at the quality of his enemies. Eh, it's easy to be friends with someone who's on his way up, who's going to have immense amounts of power in the political arena. Look at who his enemies are. Who are his enemies? Not the EU, not NATO, not Clinton, not uh, Obama, not, uh, not, not the French media groups. Whoever the establishment that got you into such a mess, whoever they hate is probably your friend. You understand? This is not, you understand, this is not remotely complicated. So for most of his campaign, he didn't have any kind of formal program. He declared last November he still hadn't released a set of proposals by February. <laughs> vote for me because, I don't know, what do you want? Okay, that, yeah, whatever you like, that. Vote for me because that, what you like. Because I will give you candy with no cavities. I will give you cheesecake with no fat. I will give you baguettes with no nappiness. <laughs> I could do that all day, but I won't. <sighs> yeah, so he got attacks to some degree from critics. And, you know, some of his allies and supporters were like, dude, <laughs> you've got to coalesce from this gaseous nonsense pompadour form into something that vaguely, vaguely resembles something that people can get a hold on. And he did eventually lay out this 150-page program on the 2nd of March. He put it online, and there was this monster marathon press conference where he talked about it. So, Macron has also described France's colonization of Algeria as a crime against humanity. And he also said, quote, it's truly barbarous, and it's part of a past that we need to confront by apologizing to those against whom we committed these Acts. 
And um, well, it didn't go down particularly well. After his remarks, Paul's reflected a decrease in his support. So this is very instructive and very interesting to, to mull over, right? So colonization of Algeria. So for one culture to go to another culture and take resources from that other culture against the wishes of the people in that culture is a crime against humanity. It's terrible. It's wrong. It's barbarous. It needs to be apologized for. Uh, on the other hand, you see, inviting migrants and immigrants in who strip mine the tax base of unwilling nativist French people. We know it's unwilling because they have to be forced to pay for these immigrants and these migrants. So when other cultures come to France and strip mine its resources against the wishes of the local population, that's diversity! That's wonderful! That's great! That's a strength! This bichromatic rainbow of moral relativism, whatever white people do, bad. If non-white people do it, it's a kind of magic. It's beautiful. And again, this is how you know the guy doesn't have any principles and is just kind of telling you what you want to hear. I'm a pilot. Let's sleep together. And this is another thing, because the left is doing a lot to shepherd this guy along, because nothing says leftist rebellion like siding with big media and big corporations and the ruling elite, and oddly enough against Russia, but we'll get back get to that in a few minutes. Because I'm old enough. Oh, yes, let me whittle on my back porch and tell you all about the good old days. So 50 years ago, the left, one of the big causes of the left was its support for third world liberation struggles, right? Be free of foreign influence. Do not let other people invade and take over your culture. Be nationalistic. Set up your borders. Respect your culture. Love your history. Love your culture. Fight off foreign influences, put up walls, have your country for yourself, be a patriot, be nationalistic, right? Because they were fighting the left to liberate these third world countries from all of this evil Western imperialism, right? They were very, very keen on independence. You've got to be able to preserve and defend your own way of life, your own customs. You've got to be able to decide your own future. National sovereignty for the third world is absolutely key. It's a virtue. Oh, wait. Europe wants to do that? Europe wants to do exactly what we praise the third world for doing? Well, that's just racist. (laughs) Fight yourself free of occupying foreign powers and control and regulations. Oh, except for the EU. That's, That's totally great. I can't believe you wouldn't be for the EU. What are you, some kind of third world or listening to us 50 years ago? And they call this sovereignism because <laughs> you just put the word ism and something gets you know it's bad oh not globalism though. that's just one if you're not a globalist clearly you just believe in the flat earth <sighs> so this idea that european countries miss being able to control their own destiny miss being countries really means that europe is moving to the right boy talk about moving the overton window eh now just wanting any kind of control over your own borders wanting any kind of country at all is being a Nazi. <laughs> so, and, and of course, it's always interpreted as, as, as racism, as racism. Now, remember, of course, racism is a word invented, invented by arch-criminal Leon Trotsky, who ended up dying at the hands of Stalin in Mexico with an ice pick to the head. So this was a word invented by Trotsky as a weapon of race warfare designed to destabilize and destroy Western society, capitalism and freedom. Just something important to remember. You're using a communist self-detonating word to destroy Western civilization every time you call someone a racist. Just remember, say, racist. Thanks, arch-murderer Trotsky. And, and so, I mean, European nations, that are, they're talking about sovereignty because they don't have it anymore. They lost it to the European Union. And, you know, they kind of want it back. It's like the cell phone contract from hell. <laughs> Now we get your kidneys. Uh, I remember that in the fine print. Can we, can we fix it? No. Okay, maybe we're going to leave. Oh, you racist. And this is like, now it's sort of grown into this weird, cloudy abstraction of human rights means the free movement of everything and everyone and everywhere. And this is, you know, this is right up there in official EU dogma. The protection of free movement, free movement of goods and people, labor and, and, and capital. 
And what this means is that a country can't be a country anymore. Because anyone can move in, anyone can move out, money can move in, money can move out. And see, don't get me wrong, I have no problem with that whatsoever. I have no problem with that whatsoever. To me, free movements of goods and people is fantastic. But if you're going to have freedom, you can't have a welfare state. You understand? You cannot have a welfare state. Because if you have a welfare state, then people will come not because they love your country and your culture and want to live the way that you live, but because they're going to pick up approximately, relative to people from the Middle East, 10 times the income they can get for working hard in the Middle East for not working in your country. Right? If you let your borders down and you still have a welfare state, well, then you just you get pillaged. Of course, right? I mean, so... I'm free, yeah, free open border, absolutely great, but not while there's a welfare state. Because you can't say we have a free, we have freedom in the EU when uh, people are pillaged to pay for a welfare state. That's not freedom. And again, all of these sort of multinational corporations and this crony capitalism, it's not capitalism, not a free market. What happens is the usual bullshit. The profits are privatized of all of this, but the costs are socialized. Right? So, I mean, in America... What this means is that in order to appeal to the Hispanic vote, the Democrats want the southern border open and they want to invite in lots of illegal immigrants. And those illegal immigrants then have anchor babies, which become bizarrely permanent U.S. citizens, despite the fact that their parents are doing something illegal. You know, the way that if you rob a bank, you get to keep the money, even though it's the product of a crime. Not. Uh, And so they do this in order to get more and more votes. But the problem is it becomes tough for... um, Immigrants, both illegal and illegal, to come in and pay for American-style health care. And so then you need Obamacare, right? Because the, the, the profits, in this case, votes, are accrue to the ruling class on the left. But the costs have to be paid for by everyone. And so that's very, very important as well. Now, the French, they kind of went all in on the European Union. And because because they've been so significantly infested by the leftist brain virus. And the leftists uh, have always championed internationalism. And communism, leftism, Marxism, and so on, is class-based and classes everywhere. So national borders are not important. They're irrelevant. Uh, And they actually impede the free flow of Marxist totalitarian dictatorships. And so capital likes to be international, Capitalists like to be able to hire internationally, and they sure as hell like to be able to hire. Uh, they, they love to be able to bring in workers from the third world because they can then lower, keep, keep costs of, of labor down, right? They can pay people less because they're dragging lots of people in from the third world, which drives down wages. And then what they do is the people in the country, uh, the natives in the country, have to be highly taxed to pay for all of the social benefits and the welfare and the health care that all of these low-cost workers need in order to be able to make it in the country. Because, you see, if you don't have the taxpayers paying for all the social benefits, then the people you bring in from the third world will demand more wages to pay for their health care and their savings and all that kind of stuff. So, again, it drives wages down. It socializes the, the costs and privatizes the profits, which is, you know, basic uh, fascism 101. Also, there's this ridiculous idea that because nations went to war in the past, nations are the cause of war, and nationalism is the cause of war. And, I mean, it's nonsense. Nations don't cause wars any more than knives cause murders. Central banks cause wars because they allow for wars to continue far beyond the economic might and survivability of the country uh, itself. And wars would either be ended very quickly or... Uh, wars would never even be started if you had to raise taxes to pay for the wars directly. So the moment you get a central bank, you get um, massive capacity to wage war uh, without having to raise taxes, which dulls people's resistance against this kind of force. And there's another thing, too, that's important as well. So let's sort of rewind about 12 years. So this idea of this sort of socialized Europe, this central planning, one Europe government was... um, well, it took a bit of a shot to the Nats. It took a, a bit of a fatal blow. Well, sorry, let me correct myself. It would have taken a fatal blow if the people had been listened to and if basic democratic principles had been even remotely followed. So what I'm talking about is in 2005, there was a referendum uh, in France to ask the French people if they wanted to inc- uh, approve a constitution for 
a united Europe. And this was a wildly popular popular discussion, a populist discussion as well. And they meetings of, of citizens and they they went, you know, dots and eyes over this lengthy document trying to figure out what it meant and so on. And it was a pretty wild document. So it was sort of outside the bounds of normal constitutions, right? So this document would freeze the member states into a single monetarist economic policy. Zero possibility of change. And people didn't like that. Adding another layer of unaccountable abstract bureaucracy somewhere over there in Brussels is not how you enjoy your self-determination. It's how you lose control of your entire country and society. You know, basically, if you want to think of borders of countries, what are they? There are walls between countries. They're metaphorical walls, and they're the bones of all the people who died to create, sustain, maintain, and protect that country. Every country is ringed by bones a mile high. That's a significant sacrifice made by your ancestors in order to give you the country that you have. And there is something instinctive, and still, even though it's mocked and attacked, I mean, the leftists are incredibly tribal. They only hire other leftists, and they regularly hire attack and, uh, sorry, fire attack and, and try to demonetize everybody who's not on the left. They're fiercely tribal, fierce in-group preferences. Naturally, of course, what they want to do is try and get everyone else to reject any kind of in-group preferences, because that's kind of how you win. But there is, even though there's all this leftist propaganda, there is still a tribal instinct, a I prefer my own kind instinct that is all over the world and is one of the reasons why evolution works. Evolution works because we prefer genetic proximity to genetic distance. We prefer our own children to other people's children. We prefer our own tribe to other people's tribes. You can deny that and get mad at it if you want, but you're just denying and getting mad at basic evolution. So May 29th, 2005, French voters rejected this European-wide constitution by 55% to 45%. Now, that's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, elections are close because most times people just manipulate the language so that other people, the voters, potential voters, hear what they want to hear so that it's always very close. A 10% gap is pretty wide. And so this seemed to be like a great victory for representative democracy. Except it wasn't. Right? Overwhelming majority voted to get rid, to not have this European-wide constitution. And then what happened was they renamed the document the Lisbon Treaty, which basically the same document that the French voters rejected overwhelmingly. And then they ratified it in December 2007 with no referendum, no voter input whatsoever. This was an important moment in European history, particularly, of course, in French history. Because it doesn't matter then what the people said. There's huge disillusionment with politics. Because people said, well, you know, we, we got together, we met, we debated, we examined this document, we poured through everything, we voted our conscience, and then, boom, doesn't matter. Too bad, suckers, globalism wants its way. Mm. You can get all Tiananmen Square guy if you want. The tanks are going to keep on rolling and you can end up as toe jam in between the tracks. Politicians said, fine, you don't want it, we'll rename it and do it without your approval. That's rough, man. That's rough. And, of course, as this massive, giant, totalitarian, well, semi-totalitarian experiment called the EU has ground its horrifying way onwards, um, chewing up countries in its wake, this monetarist policy based on the euro doesn't, doesn't create growth, doesn't promote job creation. It, it destroys growth and destroys jobs. Because you, you can't even control your own currency with your local central bank. You've got to borrow from private banks, EU-based private banks, and pay them interest. France, countries are more and more in debt. French industry, vanishing. French farmers are committing suicide on average of one every other day. It's not even close to what was promised. Now... Macron, sorry for that, we're back. Macron, this is an article from the New York Times. He is ardently pro-Europe. And uh, he has, quote, proudly embraced an unpopular European Union. Why is he pro-EU? 
Why? Now, he's pro-Europe. He wants to unite a divided country, a divided house, a divided Europe. He wants to bring... It's all this nonsense, like, cheesy relationship, mediation crap. Nothing to do with any particular policies. But, of course, there are people in the bureaucracy and in the finance world who want to continue to privatize the profits while socializing the costs, and the EU is a perfect vehicle for all of that. Now, he is with regards to migrants, right? So there are a lot of French socialists, including former Prime Minister Manuel Valls, who aren't very keen on this open-door policy towards immigrants and refugees. But Angela Merkel is right in line with Emmanuel Macron that... He says, France, I've got confidence they can absorb more immigrants and more migrants and welcome them. Ah, it's going to be great for our economy because, you know, bringing in, ah, well, I mean, Syrian refugees, two-thirds of them are illiterate even in their own language. Trust me, guys, all the positive, net positive economic migrants or immigrants from the Middle East or other third world places, um, well, they, they came generations ago. Like all, all the smartest people from the Middle East and, and third world countries, they left generations ago to come to the West. You're not getting the best anymore. Anymore. You're just going right down the line. And of course, one of the reasons why people are leaving the third world to come to Europe is because Europe scooped up all the smart people from the third world generations ago, which has left nobody intelligent to run the third world anymore. So you understand. So... Open borders, more migrants, more immigrants, more people on welfare, more radicalization, more jihadis. It's, it's what you're going to get. He's very open about this. You know, you can be forgiven to some degree if people convincingly lie to you. But when they openly tell you the truth, well, let's just say if uh, France goes open borders, I'm not talking about France anymore. I'm, I'm just not. I mean, I... I it's like watching the surgery channel when you're in hospital. I mean, forget it. No way. If you guys openly just want to end your own culture and civilization, that's that's your business. I'm not going to watch. So Macron, he has a five-year, 50 billion euro investment plan and also a 60 billion euro reduction in spending. <laughs> I guess he's got magic spreadsheets. It's Excel psychosis. It's Magic fantasy land Excel where you can just type whatever you want and no equations, no relations, nothing like that. I mean, where is he going to find these savings and how is he going to finance his investment plan? Well, Macron proposes 10 billion euros in savings from local government. But uh, local government, at least the claims are, they're already pretty strapped. And down at the local government level, that's where this like battle for public services is playing out. It's this essential battle. So, I don't know. We're just going to find some money between the couches of the local governments and uh, off we go. <sighs> and these, you know, billions and billions of euros of savings that he wants to see at the national level, pretty vague. Save money. It's magic. And um, he wants to save 10 billion euros in unemployment benefits. Okay. How's that not going to be detrimental to certain unemployed people, at least to their economic interests in the short run? Because at the same time, he wants to open up, Macron wants to open up unemployment insurance benefits to everyone, including people who quit their previous jobs. I mean, that's pretty left-wing. That's pretty left-wing. And uh, at a time when he wants to liberalize some of these... um, Economic restrictions on hiring and firing, sure, he feels like he's got to expand that. But the math just doesn't add up at all. So he's pretty leftist on that, but he's um, he's also borrowing at least something from the right. Because he's, oh, consumer spending, if we cut payroll taxes, consumer spending is going to go up. And, you know, all of this stuff is fairly much from the right. In fact, it's a program that's fairly close to a, a former president, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. She's a right-leaning centrist, but um, it's not. It's just a grab bag. It's no, no principles. It's just, just saying stuff to, to please everyone and hoping that everyone says, well, I get what I want without realizing that his programs mean that some people are going to win and some people are going to lose. But if you only ever talk about the, the people who win to the people who win, 
No. Everyone's going to be voting for you. Because good job, government education. Regarding security and terrorism, he's terrible. So there's a bill out there, it's a reform bill, um, around depriving citizens, sorry, depriving citizenship for French-born and naturalized citizens if those people have been convicted of terrorism charges. Not charged, convicted. They are convicted terrorists. And, um, of course, there is this um, reform bill to deprive citizenship for those people. He says that this is not a, quote, concrete solution. I don't know what that means. Nobody knows what that means. He just doesn't like it. Well, of course, he doesn't want to do anything to antagonize Muslim voters, which says a lot about the challenges that he's facing and that France is facing. Macron wants to increase funding for intelligence agencies because uh, maintaining borders apparently is too expensive. But he does have one solution. You know, there's always, to me, there's always one point where you just go, Okay, that's just nuts. Okay. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. It's serious stuff. It's so mad. So Macron, he's got a proposal that each young adult in France is going to get a culture pass worth 500 euros. And that may encourage young people, you see, to discover how wonderful the culture of France is and that's going to deter terrorism. Yes, that's right. Macron wants to defer the fight against terrorism to the Mona Lisa. That is really quite astounding. How are we going to arm people in the fight against terrorism? A baguette, a latte, a beret, and books of social Marxism. Now we're going to win. Impressionism. Beats, shrapnel. I mean, that's really, really quite... I mean, anybody who puts that forward is like, (laughs) you can't possibly be serious. But he is. And a lot of people don't seem to see it. He also has endorsed proposals to make it mandatory for internet companies to allow the government to access encrypted communications from customers. So, let's move to his wife. Now, let's just say there's a, a little bit of, of an age difference, you know, in, in the same way that dinosaurs haven't been around for a little bit of time. It's not exactly a scandal. It's a little weird. There might be a scandal embedded in it. But even if there was, personal scandals, eh, if you're a French president, who cares? François Mitterrand was found to have a secret second family. Still popular. Jacques Chirac was... Um, found to be embezzling public funds when he was a mayor of Paris and was given a two-year suspended prison sentence. Nicolas Sarkozy and his wife Carla Bruni have both been accused of having extramarital affairs and the former French president was ordered Tuesday to stand trial in a campaign finance scandal case from 2012. Hollande, the current president, was found to have had an affair or found to be having an affair with Julie Gaillet, the French actress, and uh, this was so shocking and appalling to the French population that he broke his marriage vows and cheated on his wife that his popularity rose by only 2%. Could have been much, much higher. So Macron has a wife, Brigitte Troneau. She is 64 years old. He's 39. She's a grandmother of seven. She's 24 years older than her husband. So not really a cougar, more like a, more like a saber-tooth. Now, age differences. Okay, yeah, Trump has an age difference with Melania. It's similar, but she was 28 um, when, when they met. When Macron met his current wife, well, he was, he was 15 and she was 40. Now, in France, the age of consent is 15 However, if they had sexual affairs before he was 18, she might have broken the law. You're not allowed to have sex with anyone between 15 and 17 if you're in a position of authority over the victim, right? So that would be Macron. Now, if she did, if they did have sexual relations before he became 18, then the powers that be have something on him. 
right? I mean, the question is, why is this guy found? Why is he groomed? Um, you know, he's a pretty boy and uh, he, you know, has some decent oratorical skills. But I genuinely believe that a lot of times the elites promote people because they can control them. And how can they control them? This is just a hypothesis. No proof of this. Right? I'm just telling you it's a possibility. Because if they have any kind of proof or, or at least can maintain or mount a credible case that he consummated his relationship with his wife before the age of 18, before he became 18, then they can destroy him. And I don't know what the statute of limitations is. Maybe they could send his wife to jail. Big problem. Because, you know, this relationship, there's a way of looking at it like there's a 40-year-old teacher who's sexually grooming her 15-year-old student. Now, Emmanuel's parents found out about this. First, they thought he was just interested in this teacher's daughter who was actually a classmate of his. But they found out that it was this married woman of, of, of three, with some of her children are actually older than Macron. So they yanked him out of the school, sent him off to Paris to get him away from her um, after they found out about this relationship with Brigitte. So Macron's mother spoke to Anna Fulda, the author of the book, Emmanuel Macron, a perfect young man. <laughs> That's what we call objective journalism. And so, yeah, she said, oh, I thought my son was interested in Brigitte's daughter, one of his classmates. She said, we couldn't believe it. What is clear is that when Emmanuel met Brigitte, we couldn't just say, that's great. So Emmanuel's mom reportedly told Brigitte, don't you see, you've had your life, but he won't have children with you. Now, the couple, they've never said at what point their relationship became romantic. <laughs> Yeah, no kidding. No, okay. So Brigitte, again, she's 64. She's quoted in this book. She says, Nobody will ever know at what moment our story became a love story. That belongs to us. That is our secret. Of course it's a secret. Of course it's a secret because it might have put her in jail. Ah. So the story goes that Macron tried to get Trono, his teacher, to write a play with him, which was a ploy to spend more time with her. And this is according to the French magazine Gala. I don't know. <laughs> hey, teach, you're 40, I'm 15. Want to write a play together? I've got a great title, Vacuous Oedipus. <sighs> so the woman, Trono, the teacher, said, I didn't think it would go very far. And... You know, she'd married to her first husband for 20 years by this point. Three kids with him and all that. So she goes on to say, the teacher says, I thought he would get bored. We wrote, and little by little I was totally overcome by the intelligence of this boy. Boy! He's a boy! And a good-looking young man, too. Just a good-looking young man. And I just find it kind of weird. I'm going to tell you, kind of weird. I know, I mean, if I was some... Some teacher. I don't know. It's not even good with them. But, but can you imagine? Like, your wife comes to you and there's this really good-looking 15-year-old boy who wants to hang out with her every Friday night to write plays together. Sure. Go for it. I'm French. And the word for French, the word for cuck in French is French. <laughs> so she goes on to say, writing would bring us together every Friday and triggered an incredible closeness between us. This is what she told to Paris Match. So, yeah, I hung out and worked on plays together and spent lots of time together and giggled and whispered together and so on. And this is, you know, kind of a thing, right? So either she's ridiculously... 25 years, 24 years, whatever, 40 and 15. Either he's ridiculously mature or she's ridiculously immature or there's some combination of the two. What is a 40-year-old mother of three, have in common with a pretty boy of 15? Well, I guess I think we know. Macron himself has called his relationship with, with her clandestine, often hidden and misunderstood. Mm, I don't really know that it's that misunderstood. I mean, it's a boring game of reversal, but just for the sake of it, I mean, if Macron were 
an ex-teacher who'd left his wife to hook up with his teenage student. Oh, come on. I mean, Macron was baptized as a Catholic at the age of 12 by his own request. I want to be baptized as a Catholic at the age of 12. Three years later, he's actively trying to break up a family. Three years after his come-to-Jesus moment. That seems kind of meaningful in terms of trust. And clearly he doesn't want to have kids. He lives, he's a step-grandfather to three children of the children about the same age as he is. Not going to have kids. They say, we've chosen not to have kids. No, no, nature has chosen that you don't have kids, unless you want to have dinosaurs. (sighs) So, that's Macron. Or rather, that's not Macron, since I don't think there's anybody to find out who the guy is other than a plus perfect reflection of whatever it is you fantasize about. And, um, but it has revealed a lot about certain ideologies, particularly on the left. This election cycle has revealed a lot about feminism. See, women in France back Le Pen. Overwhelmingly, they back Le Pen. Le Pen, of course, could break through the patriarchal glass ceiling by becoming the first female president of France. So you got women backing a female president who could break through the patriarchy, break through the class ceiling. And the feminists hate Le Pen. See, feminism, well, it's a bunch of pear-shaped, funny-haired, useful idiots for socialism. It's nothing to do with women. They don't love women. They love socialism. They use women as a bioweapon against anyone who resists the spread of socialism. So feminism completely revealed. Women back Le Pen. She's a female candidate. And... You've got crazy feminists trying to block women from voting for a female candidate. So, feminism completely revealed. The poor support Le Pen. Like in in Paris, center of French wealth and culture, 5%, only 5% of people vote for Le Pen. You go outside of the cities to the rural districts who have to deal more with the migrant crisis, who are dealing more with unemployment, who are dealing more with poor government services and are really, really unhappy. Those are the poorer people. They support Le Pen. And the leftists hate Le Pen. And are going for the, the bankster, the, the establishment candidate, the guy who's a slave and, a, a slave and serve, serves and is a lackey of the existing power structures in this capitalist country. So the left is actively siding with the oligarchy, with the crony capitalists against the poor. So the left, completely revealed. This racist narrative, completely revealed. Again, if you want to see, right? So the Migrants, Islamics, the, the, the Muslims who come in, their culture must be respected. Diversity is a strength, it's a value. You've got to respect their culture. They're allowed to love their own culture. They're allowed to have pride in their own culture, in their own way of life, in their own thinking. But native, white, French culture, oh, that's evil. You can't have any pride in that. You can't have any respect for that. <laughs> smash, smash, smash. Which means that you have a hostile standard to whites and an idolatry standard for non-whites. Which means that you are acting on anti-white hatred, which is completely racist. It's all revealed. All you have to do is look. An old French saying, Quand le mort veut parler de la raison, doit se taire. Which means roughly... When love wants to talk, the reason must be silent. All right. No more. French people, please, no more. Now is not the time for feelings. Now is not the time for sentimentality. Now is not the time for tears. Now is not the time for emotion. Now is the time for reason, for facts. You had a nice, what, generation or two of unreality, of pretending you could pay everything to everyone, kick the can down the road, sell your children to largely foreign banksters. You had a good run. Now the vacation is over. Now it's time to put aside childish things, to grow up, to stop going for empty-headed, tousle-haired crypt lovers who are promising you everything and inviting you to enter their unreality. Unreality is where cultures go to expire. Cultures must rub against reality like a sword must be sharpened by a whetstone. There is conflict in that. There are sparks in that. But that's how. The weapon of culture that protects you in this world, 
this world that wants to take everything that you have. This is how the weapon of culture protects you. By grinding against reality and conflict. You had a good run. You had a vacation for a couple of generations. Now the bill is due. Now you must snap out of it. You must return to reality. Vacation time is over. Get back to work.